Okay. So, no uh, idea or concept is more central to the Buddhist teaching and more misunderstood than kama, uh, or karma, as it's in Sanskrit, kama and pali, the Buddha's uh, recorded language. And um, in the West, we've given karma some very strange uh, interpretations and ideas. It, it goes a little bit along the lines of, if you act like a, sh- a shit in this, you know, today, then somewhere in the future somebody will take it out on you. If you, if you kick a dog today, then down the line a dog will bite you. Um, so we've kind of we've kind of given it a, Newto- a half Newtonian and half mystical kind of thing, and and put it together in this melange of like kind of stupidity, which um, uh, in no way, uh, 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 in any way, captures the uh, the teaching. And the teaching is actually a very very straightforward psychological insight. Nothing more, nothing less. It's not a mystical teaching. It's not a a teaching that uh, requires enormous leaps of faith and doesn't, in fact, it doesn't require leaps of faith. It's very observable and it's already been very validated by research, which I'm going to be going into. Um, I think, though, rather than uh, first launching into an explanation of what it is, I'm going to just read you uh, from one of the Buddha's great, great teachings. Certainly, uh, over the thousands of uh, suttas that I've um, become acquainted with over the years, this sutta is probably amongst the ten or 20 that is my favorite, and certainly the one that, uh, for me, sealed the deal as a Buddhist. And I think um, uh, it's wonderful on so many levels. In the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of people going around uh, teaching ways to develop peace of mind. That was basically understood to be the core goal of uh, spiritual practice, then, to end suffering. And um, so the Buddha in this sutta is wandering through an area where a lot of other teachers have been passing through. And during the time, there was a wide uh, array of views and opinions about how to cultivate lasting peace of mind. Some people said that um, uh, it would only come about by very self uh, uh, harming acts. Uh, involving inflicting pain and depriving the body of, of, of food. And some people, on the other hand, had the exact opposite belief. They were, you know, there's no point to existence. We, you just happiness is getting uh, whatever you can, uh, just enjoying every moment regardless of the consequences or whatever the actions are. Just do it to just, you know, get your fill. And um, there were nihilists at the time. Existence is a mistake. There's no possibility of happiness. And there was uh, 
There were people who believed, uh, Brahmins believed in animal sacrifices, appeasing gods were the way to get lasting happiness. So um, the Kalamas come to the Buddha and they say, the Buddha, they say, we've been taught many contradictory doctrines by a wide variety of teachers. And each of these teachers criticize and tear each other apart to the point where we're not sure what to believe anymore. And I love the answer because, I mean, it's just as fresh 2,500 years later and amazing that somebody would, would answer, a, a spiritual teacher would answer in this way. He, the Buddha replies, uh, Kalamas, it's completely understandable that you're, you don't know what to believe. Listen, don't believe what you've been told. Don't believe common traditions or rumors. Don't believe what's written in books. Don't believe what you've surmised by intuition. Don't believe what you've put together through twisty labyrinthian reasoning. Don't believe even what you've been taught by a, hardly, a highly regarded teacher such as himself. He's saying, don't believe me. Only when you've seen for yourselves that something is unskillful and harmful should you abandon it? Only when you've seen for yourself. This is known as the Buddha's charter for free inquiry. So that's pretty great right there. You don't meet many, you know, you can look through the Old Testament and look for people that said, so God said, you don't have to believe him, just go out and try things for yourself and see what you, you believe. You don't find that very often in spiritual texts. <laughs> Most of the time, people have their sermons on the mounts and they say, you know what, this is the only way. Believe me or you're, gonna, you're damned. But the Buddha is simply saying, don't believe anything until you, have, until you see for yourselves. And then he goes further. He, goes, um, he says, um, when acting on intentions born of hate, greed, or delusion leading to times when people steal, kill, and lie, and so forth, does this lead to their long-term harm or good in your experience? In your experience. Not what do you think. In your experience, what happens when you steal, lie, you know, hopefully not too many of you are killed, but... Um, <laughs> and they reply, well, it leads to harm. And then the Buddha says, you will see that a practitioner who lives without greed, hatred, or delusion dwells in a peaceful mind. That is karma. That is the statement of karma. Someone who lives without greed, hatred, or delusion dwells in a peaceful mind, free of agitation. So there's no God in it, there's no uh, mysticism, there's no, um, there's no Newtonian, it's a sheer psychological statement. And then he concludes... If there is a life after death, your peace of mind will continue to the next realm if you've acted skillfully. If there is no life after death, you will reside in this lifetime in a peaceful mind if you act harmlessly. So he's saying there that you don't have to believe in rebirth. You don't have to believe in it. It's not even central to his teaching. What is central is seeing the relationship between acting on harmful intentions and suffering in the long term. No one will resent someone who refrains from evil. One's mind is pure when it is free from harmful intentions. So 
So this is a psychological teaching. Now, let's uh, go a little deeper. Um, the key of karma is that uh, it's, the statement is about long-term repercussions. Anybody can pick up a crack pipe, smoke it, and immediately get a little relief from their suffering. Uh, anybody can shoot dope and do the same. Uh, but the long-term ramifications of those acts are not lasting peace of mind. So we're not talking about, oh, I've got to take the edge off, I have a couple of bees, take a couple of lewds. Well, they don't make lewds anymore. <laughs> I, I just watched Wolf of Wall Street. So I'm about 30, to, 30 years too late. All right, whatever, you know. I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to get drunk. And that will be the solution that I need. So um, we're talking about long-term solutions not short-term. In fact, the Buddha says the difference between somebody who's wise and foolish is simply the ability, it boils down to, to see the long-term results of their actions. If we can simply do that, uh, so many of the mistakes that we make in life uh, would be averted. Uh, so many of our unskillful uh, coping defense strategies, uh, the unfortunate tendencies that we develop in life towards avoiding any conflict, uh, trying to people-please people no matter what, lying and being evasive, uh, justifying everything we do no matter how unskillful. All of these uh, behaviors generally have their roots in childhood when we don't, A, have the attention span to see the long-term consequences, and B, uh, we're very e easily terrified in childhood. We depend entirely upon caretakers to survive. So we tend to uh, revert to anything that will inform our, or make us feel secure in the short term, damn the long-term consequences. So um, how does <coughs> karma appear? Elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha lists a bunch of different areas we can expect to see the arising of unskillful acts from the past. We can expect to see it in gut feelings of discomfort and unease uh, over if we've acted unskillfully. Or we can feel feelings of, of uh, great ease and a sense of comfort if we've done something that's very skillful. We can feel it in the mind itself, can feel restless and agitated. The word in Pali is udaka, kakucha, udaka, kakucha. I love those words. So um, we can also become aware of it in our thoughts in and of themselves. The word papancha means, uh, in the Buddhist time, means obsession, obsessive thoughts, and very often when we act unskillfully, as I'm sure you're aware, the mind populates with tons of self-justification, with reams and reams of, um, of, well, I was justified, everybody else does it, or I've had a hard life, or fuck that guy, <laughs> I never liked him anyway or whatever comes up. But generally, the more unskillful the action, the more 
we populate the mind with obsessive ideations trying to re-narrate it in a way that's palatable so that we won't feel the discomfort with the action. We're looking for just the right twist to make the feelings of discomfort go away. Now, one of the questions I had for uh, many years being the, uh, being a skeptical person is this idea that the harmfulness of our actions is what causes long-term suffering, that if we're greedy or uh, filled with hate or acting out of self-centered delusion or if we act on intentions, the, the sort of default intentions we have, which is I've got to survive immediately, damn anybody else, if we act out of those sort of default intentions, then we'll wind up uncomfortable and very uh, uh, uneasy minds in the long term. It sounded like that that was a kind of moralizing statement. But actually, it turns out that the more, um, thankfully, not only due to the research done by all the psychologists associated with Martin Seligman and the whole positive psychology movement, Sonia Lyubimorsky and, and um, uh, what's name? Jonathan Haidt and all those people. But um, there's actually a lot of, as well, wonderful uh, neuroscience uh, and research that points out to why this is the case. Um, there's a wonderful book by a gentleman named Alan Shore, and it is, uh, I, I recommend it with um, uh, the, the note that it is pretty much unreadably, unreadable dull. Uh, <laughs> I've struggled with getting several hundred pages into it, but, and it's a book of summaries of uh, contemporary uh, neuroscience, and uh, basically, though, what it establishes is that the right hemisphere of the brain is pretty much set up to establish our secure connections with other human beings. And our emotions are rely entirely as a monitor or a result of how secure we feel with other beings and how if we have positive emotions, feelings of comfort, ease, joy, happiness, it comes about because we feel securely connected with others in the world. If, on the other hand, we have feelings that are dysphoric, difficult, really sad, uncomfortable, <coughs> painful, those feelings actually arise because our uh, connection the secure connection that we need with other beings has been severed or sabotaged. All of the core human emotions boil down to our relationships, the way we feel we are relating to other beings, to other, to other people. So actions that um, cause any rift that in any way um, jeopardize our core connections <coughs> with others, create suffering. Actions that secure and 
enable us to feel connected in a deep, emotional, secure way with others create a sense of ease. Why is this? Well, human beings, we do not run particularly fast. I know you might like to think you run fast, but I guarantee you in the wild, 40,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, when you were being chased by a bear or a lion or a cougar or... You would lose, trust me. (laughs) We don't climb trees very well. We don't dig deep holes in the ground particularly quickly and jump in and hide. In fact, our survival boils down to one thing and one thing only. What is that one thing that we interact, bond, we are pack animals. We connect with others very, very well. We are tribal pack animals meant to connect. And that is why we have the right hemisphere, which has its emotional templates, which are direct reactions to the degree of connectivity we have with others. Because our sense of security and our ability to relax and feel ease is directly correlated to how well we feel connected to others. Drugs, alcohol, addictions are an attempt when those uh, connections have been um, severed due to difficult interactions in childhood or in life. Uh, And we don't feel good. We try to numb away the resulting discomforts by consuming drugs and alcohol. It doesn't work. This is why 12-step programs work so well because they allow people to restore deep connections, emotionally tolerant connections with others. So then the question is, given how important connections and feeling secure with other beings is to our lasting happiness, why is it people are power hungry? Why is it that people clamor after money without regard to others? Why is it that people act in such self-sabotaging ways? And the answer is very simple. These behaviors stem from childhood, where we don't see the lasting ramifications of discomfort that arise from severed connections. So these actions are simply about seeking immediate gratification, And the problem, though, with short-term solutions is that while they release a powerful jolt of dopamine in the brain, dopamine fades very quickly, and we become in need of more and more and more. So there was a wonderful study where they studied the release of dopamine uh, in the brains of uh, businessmen who did Deals, and they found that to get the same spike of a deal, each deal had to be twice as much as the previous deal. So if a businessman felt really good after his first $10,000 deal or whatever, to get the same amount of joy and happiness and spike, he had to make a deal of 20000 and then 40000 and 80000 And then the amounts grew so logarithmically disproportionate of anything the businessman could attain that eventually no deal could create any sense of lasting happiness or satisfaction. 
It's not a strategy for lasting peace of mind to act out of craving. Craving simply creates a hole that can never be filled. But, on the other hand, the connectivity that arises when we interact well with other people in non-harmful ways releases something called serotonin and vasopressin. And guess what? Those are endlessly replenishable and can last for a long time and can be continually released by small actions. So, that's one reason it's a good idea not to act in a shitty way. <laughs> so, I also mentioned that... Um, that on top of not only the feelings, uh, and by the way, the reason why uh, harmful acts create uncomfortable feelings, or what the Buddha called Vedana, gut feelings feel uncomfortable, is because the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, doesn't have access to language. It's actually something that's... Uh, um, <laughs> It's a, uh, and I thought I was being pretty interesting here. All right. <laughs> so the, <laughs> all right. So the next, <laughs> the, the the emotional mind speaks through the body somatically, kinesthetically. It's uh, that's what how the right hemisphere, uh, you know, expresses discomfort and unease uh, through. You know, tight stomach, contracted chest, uh, locked jaws, etc. So when we uh, act unskillfully, we become emotionally upset. Not only does it create moods in the mind, but it also, there's a very somatic message to us that we're uncomfortable. Now, the second uh, thing I noted is also that um, the, the more we act, uh, the mind becomes filled with uh, restlessness, discomfort. Um, there was a wonderful neuroscientist named Donald Hebbs, and Hebbs basically established um, uh, a postulate that went that the more we fire synapses, the more they become, um, they, the more they become stable. So neurons that fire together wire together. The more we think of thought, the more likely that thought is to arise in the future. If we act on or think thoughts of greed or, or, or ill will, those types of thoughts become hardwired into the brain. So we literally become, we create the minds we live in by the way we use our minds. This is the basic rule of neuroplasticity. So when we think of thought, when we become obsessed with any idea or thought, we are not only creating a mind state right then and there, but literally, karmically, we are creating the likelihood that either peace or agitation, ill will or kindness will be the minds that we reside in in the future. So you can decide for yourself, do you like it more when your mind is filled with thoughts of re reflecting on times that people were generous to you, 
or do you like it when your mind is simply going over all the times that people have uh, been unskillful and building up resentments? How we use the mind creates the mind we live in. Donald Hebb's postulate. Benjamin Labette, also another neurobiologist, noted that the more we think and act over time, we begin to develop action potential, we, a restlessness. We can sit still. Another side effect of constantly acting without knowing the results in the future, acting out of short-term focus without caring what's going to happen in the long term, is that we accumulate so many actions that we have no idea what action leads to what result. This is why it's best, if we're not sure, to not act until we are sure. Because we want to limit the amount of actions that we are a little fuzzy about to as few as possible so that we can actually discern the long-term results. Now, the, one of the key to remember here is that... Um, the mind's default intentions, and intentions lie at the very heart of karma. It doesn't, the Buddha said, if accidentally we cause harm to someone, if the intentions were good, if the intentions were peaceful, that's the core relevant determinant. Again, it's the thing that creates, the desire to create connections and peaceful interactions with others are what create our emotional ease down the line. So the intentions are what matter. Unfortunately, the ingrained default human intention is survival. That's what we're all born with. The human brain is out of the box when you you look at it, okay, here's my brain, got that new, uh, this new brain. The operating system is 50,000 years old, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to try this brain out. I'm going to see how it runs. And the immediate thing you're going to note is that your operating system is like, fuck them. Where do I get mine? <laughs> that's all that is preset in the human brain. At birth, we are born with extremely active amygdalas, fear uh, circuits, that work from word go. And they set us up to be suspicious and worried and agitated and fearful. And it takes the nurturing and the connectivity of others to develop what's known as affect regulation or emotion regulation, which allows us to be peaceful and happy. Why is this? Because in terms of Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest or the just reproduction of the species, it doesn't really matter how happy you are. What matters is that you last long enough to reproduce and then fuck you, basically. <laughs> Very Dharma punks teaching. But <laughs> But that's basically what the human brain is set up for. If we want to reprogram our brains to allow for lasting peace and any form of uh, 
lasting ease, tranquility, happiness. We have to undo the default wiring by establishing a sense of ease amongst our relationships with others. And we do that by acting out of harmless, non-aggressive, peaceful, caring, self-taking uh, care of as well actions. The Buddha balanced all this by insisting that we have enough equanimity that we don't go overboard and try to, you know, uh, to the degree that we cause uh, suffering to ourselves. But in general, the idea is to be as peaceful and as unharmful as we can. Those are the actions and the intentions which create a mind that is comfortable to be in. So three things to note, closing. Uh, the core of Buddhist practice is to get to a place where we can stand outside of the push or momentum of our ingrained tendencies of survival to act in ways that are skillful. How do we do this? How do we take control of the mind and undo the ingrained default wiring towards survival, the habits we've developed since childhood, the defense mechanisms, the cognitive distortions, the fear, paranoia, defensiveness, the, all of the weight of uh, you know, a materialistic culture that pushes us to accumulate despite any detriment to other people or the environment itself. How do we actually get to a place where we can begin to act skillfully? First, is when we go into interactions where we're easily triggered to become defensive, hostile, triggered into aggression, to, before we go into those situations, set an intention, set a peaceful intention or skillful intention. If we don't set intentions and we simply allow our default wiring to run the show, you know where that will lead us, to defensive, look out for number one, protect ourselves, don't think about the long-term repercussions, uh, and in the long term we'll just justify it and create lots of papancha and lots of obsessive thinking. If we want to step outside of this routine of being triggered, shouting, yelling, storming out, uh, acting unskillfully, uh, then the sort of spiraling feedback loops that arise through these conflicts and these patterns of behavior, if we want to arrest these tendencies, we can go in by taking a moment and reminding ourselves of karma and the importance of establishing an intention. The intention doesn't have to be, I'm going to let somebody walk all over me, but it can simply be, right now, instead of uh, going in with my normal uh, approach of, I have to immediately justify everything I am, you know, I've done, or feel that I have to change this person's opinion of me or the things that I do, just listen and try to 
decipher the emotions that the other person is trying to express without needing to change or anything. The more we try to uncover and understand others, the less conflict. And that desire not to protect ourselves in terms of always being defensive, but just understanding the intentions, motivations, feelings, emotional states of others can often lead to a much more skillful long-term result. If that's something that's difficult, another practice that's really rewarding is simply, before we go into a triggering situation, take a moment to scan the body and note the breath. In most cases where we feel defensive, we'll note that the shoulders will become locked, the the muscles in the arms will become taut, the jaw a little bit clenched, the forehead perhaps a little bit engaged. And uh, that um, tends to create a, a physical state of armoring. And the more physically armored we are, the more likely we are to go into battle. The breath. When the breath is clipped, cut off, short, needlessly, uh, the out-breath is really, really cut off, that also allows for reactivity. The longer and more smooth your out-breath is, the less likely we are to react defensively. The more likely we are to have choices. And karma boils down to choices. We don't have to act in any way. If we have a calm, long out-breath and we can just count it out, we can find that we have more than one choice of how to act. We're not driven anymore. Finally, another reflection I do is to bring to mind people that I respect, monks I've studied with, people who've established in my lifetime Uh, an example of behavior that I respect. And I just bring them in with me, and I imagine them sitting there being present. I often use um, Ajahn Suchito, who's a very tall, wiry monk who's I attended uh, at a couple retreats, and I just imagine how he would react. And he has a way of when people are acting insane, just staring and smiling at them until they realize that they are just insane, that they're a lunatic. <laughs> he doesn't ever say anything. You go on retreats with him, and people are trying to pick a fight, trying to, you know, figure out the one thing to say to get his temper. I would walk around the streets of New York with him, and people would come up in insane you know, uh, people just would crawl out of the cracks because here's a Buddhist monk and here's my chance to, uh, to I don't know what, but uh, he had a way of just looking, smiling, and just staying peaceful and uh, being fully present. He would never get sucked into anybody's story so to such a degree that he lost awareness of his body, he lost awareness of the sounds, the environment, he lost awareness of his posture. Everything that people were saying was just one element amongst many. And because his mind wouldn't contract, he wouldn't get defensive. If he was engaged with you and you'd say, hey, schmuck, why are you wearing those stupid-looking robes, eh? <laughs> I don't know why you're talking like a 1930s hoodlum to the, to the monk. Why would you do that? I don't know why you'd do that, but you 
Suppose you did. He wouldn't get uh, he wouldn't get caught up. He would he would stay in the body, in the breath, relaxed. You'd see nothing would change, nothing would get triggered. He would still hear the sounds around him. He'd still feel the earth beneath his feet. He still would be aware of um, all the gratitude that he had for his life. And he would engage from a mind that was expansive, not contracted around just this one hostile thing that was being said to him. So that's uh, the basics on karma. It's a psychology, a basic uh, instruction that if we want to have lasting peace of mind, it doesn't come from accumulating, appeasing gods, or... um, just out of luck. It comes about by the quality of the way we think, speak, and act. Well, thank you for listening. Now we have... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and now we have time for questions. If you leave now, please remember to donate so that we can pay the rent, which is always an ongoing struggle in New York. So I thank you. Hey,